Let's listen as God speaks. I'm reading from Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord had done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. So he who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. We're in Australia, as I start today, uh, way back in 1840. John Watsford had not long been converted when a wonderful revival occurs. John later becomes a famous missionary and pastor and evangelist. Sixty years after this remarkable revival, John Watsford looks back and he tells us some of the details of what has happened. The first revival in Parramatta that I know of came in 1840. The Christian religion is in a low state. The pastor of the church is a good man, but he's nearly worn out. He's greatly opposed to revival. The old pastor notices the men who are very much in earnest. It is the custom back then to call people by name at the prayer meeting to pray. And the old pastor doesn't ask people who are very enthusiastic to pray. Those who want revival, he doesn't ask them to pray. Two of the excellent young lay pastors or young evangelists are never asked. And then John Watsford, this young convert, he's not asked anymore neither. And what happens? Well, one day two of the lay preachers to whom John has referred speak to John. We're going to pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the revival of God's work, and we want you to join us. This is the plan. Every morning and evening and at midday, we're to spend some time in pleading with God to pour out his spirit. We're going to observe every Friday as a day of fasting and prayer. That's the plan of these two guys. And we're going to sit together in the meetings. And though we're not permitted to pray aloud, we'll silently plead for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they give John this warning. Now remember, you must not say a word against our pastor or have any bad feelings towards him because he does not allow us to take part in the meetings. Our pastor knows what he is doing and he has his own reasons for it. If we complain or speak against him, the Lord will not hear our prayer. So we carry out the plan, the three of us, for one, 
two, three weeks. No one but God and ourselves know exactly what we're doing. One Sunday evening, the old pastor, William Walker, preaches a powerful sermon. After the service, the people flock to the prayer meeting till the hall is filled. My two friends are there, one on each side of me, says John, and I know that they have got hold of God. We could hear sighs and suppressed sobs all around us. The old pastor who had conducted the service is now bringing the benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and he can't go any further. Here he stops and he sobs aloud. When he is able to speak, William Walker, the old pastor, calls out, oh, Brother Watsford, will you lead in prayer? And then the two friends, they also pray, John Watsford's friends, and oh, the power of God that comes upon the people they are overwhelmed by God's power in every part of the room. And what a cry for mercy. It is heard by the passers-by in the street, some of whom came running to see what's the matter. And these people are smitten down at the door in great distress. The clock of the neighbouring church strikes 12 before people leave the meeting that night. And how many are saved, we cannot tell. Day after day, week after week, the work goes on and many are converted. Among them, there are many kids, many young persons. Thank God when children are saved, says John Watsford. Some people think and speak lightly of the conversion of kids. But instead of doing all they can to help and guard them, they're always expecting them to fall away. John tells us 60 years after this revival that many of those young children who were converted are still going strong in the church. And of course, back in 1840, people didn't live as long. Some of them have already gone to glory 60 years later. My first main point, let's look in Psalm 126 at verse 1, 2 and 3. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion or the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. My first main point this morning is about vision. In Psalm 126, you see God's coming in power and doing great things, just like back in Parramatta in 1840. A dream, a vision. This is the vision that we should all have. A vision is something great and indispensable. A true vision is glorious and clear. And it fits with the Bible. This picture in Psalm 126 and verse 1 about those who dreamed, the dream has come true. It's an amazing vision. 
It takes us back to all kinds of pictures in the Bible. You especially would think of when people came through the Red Sea and there was such a celebration, such joy. They were like people who dreamed. And then you have the picture, of course, when people came back from captivity. It was an extraordinary thing that God raised up Cyrus to encourage them all to go and equip them all to go. It was a dream come true. Something that had been predicted, but it came true. And then, of course, the most amazing one of all was what happens at Christmas time. When a virgin conceives and has a child, and his name is Emmanuel, God with us. God comes right where we are. And then, of course, there is Pentecost where thousands of people come to know the Lord on the one day and more just a couple of days later. This is our vision. It's extraordinary. But look at Psalm 126, verse 4. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy, says verse 3, but there's a prayer now, verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the never, Negev. We have the vision, the picture of God doing great things, the dream come true. The focus is all on God. God is the giver. People are the receivers. But in verse 4, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. What happens to streams in the Negev? Well, the dry season comes and everything is barren. And terrible. You can't grow anything. And things all look dead. And what's going to happen to all the animals? But way up in the mountains, there's been extensive storms and showers and more and more and more and more rain. And those hillside rivulets, they all start melting together and coming down the mountains, one after the other, joining up with one another. And soon there is a raging torrent. The streams in the Negev are overflowing their banks. There's a foaming, roaring, dancing torrent. Instantaneous transformations. Who wouldn't want such a change in the church? Who wouldn't want to ask for such a change in the church, expecting such a change in God's church. Who wouldn't want to see God's church changing like this? The vision is the transforming work of God in a single act that changes all, solves all, and does all. This is God's work. It is the restoration of his church. As God sends revival uniquely and only by his grace, what happens? God can remove the barrenness as soon as grace is imparted from the heaven. The God who created all things out of nothing as if they had already existed, that God comes down and he renews his church in a moment. In times of revival, God comes down, God's word comes home, God purifies Purity comes through and God's people come alive and outsiders come in. 
But this psalm has something more to say, doesn't it? What must also be seriously considered is of great practical importance for each one of us this morning. Psalm 126 is a pilgrim psalm. Pilgrims on foot must take steps. The vital step is the very next one. And after that, the next step. And the step after that. And then the next one. And then the next step. Otherwise you get nowhere. Steps must be taken. The matching truth for a vision or a dream come true is that we must set realistic goals and plan stage by stage how to get to those goals. The goal is the vision. The step, let me call it policy. Policy. My second main point is about policy. It's there in verse 5. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. John Watsford and his two friends pray for divine action, but their prayers are accompanied by steady, demanding work of sowing seed and waiting for the harvest. There is no harvest without the sowing of the seed. Look at the last verse. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. This is a line or a trail of seeds. It's not the sower just throwing them out. That happens too, but that's not what's happening here. It's a line or a trail of seeds. The sower here leaves a trail of seeds as he goes along. You see the policy of John Watsford, two friends? They know that the Lord blesses the believers who respect the old pastor, William Walker. They expect a harvest. They want a harvest, they pray for a harvest, but they take initiatives to get that harvest. They're determined, they're lay preachers, and they want to see the seed come alive. The harvest is ahead. This is the way of every farmer. The farmer accepts the tasks, and those tasks really become part of him in such a way that he's emotionally involved. I say, if you would be useful, dear friends, my brothers and sisters, you must cultivate sacred passions. You must think lots about divine realities until they move and stir your souls. That people are dying and perishing. That hell is filling. That Christ is dishonoured. And that souls are not converted to Christ. And that the Holy Spirit must be grieved. And that Satan seems to rule and rain. All this ought to be well considered by us and our hearts should be stirred until we're like the prophet in Jeremiah 9 and verse 1, Jeremiah 9, 1. Oh, that my head were a spring of waters and my eyes a fountain of tears. The useful worker for Christ is a person of tenderness, not one who doesn't care whether souls are saved or not. The useful worker for Christ is not one so wrapped up in the thought of divine sovereignty as to be absolutely petrified. But the useful worker for Christ is one who feels as if he is dying or she is dying with the sinner who is perishing in 
his or her ruin. And the useful worker, if you're one of those, you could only be happy if the sinner becomes happy and finds a paradise. The weeping then in this verse, in verse 6, the weeping then shows you what kind of person it is the Lord of the harvest largely employs. God's person is a person in earnest, a person of tenderness, a person in love with souls, a person carried away with compassion, a person who feels for sinners, and in a word, a Christ-like person. And why is this so critical? People are not interested in just words, the words of the gospel. People are not attracted to the gospel that leaves those who say they believe the gospel and yet they're no different from unbelievers. People are not interested in the gospel when it's only exhibited by those who show no transformation. Policy involves important steps of showing forth the power of change in the lives of those who are indwelt by God's spirit. Work for God, my dear brothers and sisters. Work for God, I say to you, as those who know that the truth is a seed. Do not think and speak of God's seed, of God's gospel, and forget it. Do not tell the gospel as though it were a stone and then leave the gospel lie in the ground, never to come up. Tell out the truth as it is in Jesus with the firm conviction that here is life in this seed of the gospel and that something will come of the seed. Why are John Watsford's friends expecting the seed to bring a harvest? Why are they so earnest? Why are they so Christ-like? Why are they willing to wait and pray and pray and wait? Well, I do not have all the details. I can read quite a few details about John himself, but I don't know much about the friends at all. But I do know they were Methodists, people who are serious about a great vision and serious about policy. A portrait of a disciplined Christ-like person is easily found, though, in many places in the Bible, and that's better than even the details from a biography. Let's go to Galatians. Galatians 5, and here's a portrait of the Christ-like person very easily found in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here we have a cluster of nine Christ-like graces or virtues which portray a Christian's attitude to God and to people and even to yourself. Love, joy and peace. This is the first of the three fruit. They're general Christian virtues and they primarily concern our attitude toward God. The Christian's first love is your love for God. Your chief joy is your joy in God. And your deepest peace is peace with God. Then you have the next three, patience, kindness, and goodness. They are social graces or social virtues, person to person rather than God would in their direction. Patience is long-suffering towards those who aggravate or persecute. 
Kindness has to do with your disposition, and goodness involves words and deeds. The last group of the fruit and the cluster is faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Faithfulness describes the reliability of a Christian person. Gentleness is that humble meekness which Christ shows. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine. I am meek and lowly in heart. And both gentleness and meekness are aspects of self-mastery or self-control. So we may say that the primary direction of the first three, love, joy and peace, is Godward. Patience, kindness and goodness is person to person. And faithfulness is gentleness and self-control are your attitude toward yourself. All these are the fruit of God's spirit, the natural produce that appears in the lives of spirit-led Christians like John Watsford and his friends. How does all this happen? What is policy here? What are the crucial steps? Galatians 5 verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. This verse is frequently misunderstood. Notice that crucifixion of the sinful nature describes here something that is not done to us, but it is something that is done by us. It is we ourselves who are said to have crucified the sinful nature. Now I can best expose the popular misunderstanding of this by going back to Galatians 5, Galatians 2 and verse 20. Very well known verse, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Through the law I died to the law, Galatians 2.20, so that I might live for God. In verse 19, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That is your position. That's not your policy. That's who you are. If you're the goalie, that's where you stay. You don't run all over the field like little soccer players that don't know what they're doing. That's your position. You have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer you that live but Christ lives in you. But when you get to chapter 5 and verse 24, there's something different. Here in this verse, I have been crucified, is verse two, chapter 2, verse 20. But here in this verse, it is we ourselves who have to take action. Now we come to policy. We have crucified our sinful nature. It is not a dying which we have experienced through our union with Christ and being joined to him. It is rather a deliberate putting to death. What does it mean? We'll go to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Mark 8, 34, and you'll find, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up your cross is the Lord's vivid picture of self-denial. Every follower of Christ is to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution 
Now Paul takes the picture to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but we must actually see that the execution takes place. We're actually to take our willful and our wayward self and, so to speak, nail it to the cross. This is Paul's graphic description of repentance. Turning our back on our old life with its selfishness and its sin, repudiating it finally and utterly. The fact that crucifixion is to be the fate of the sinful nature is very significant. For one thing, a Christian's rejection of the old nature is to be pitiless. Crucifixion in the Roman world is not a pleasant form of execution, nor is it administered to nice or refined people. It is reserved for the worst criminals, which is why it is such a shameful thing for our Saviour Jesus Christ to be crucified. So this means that we ourselves must crucify our sinful nature. We must not give in to that sinful nature. We must be pitiless. But crucifixion is also extremely painful. I don't know what pains you've ever suffered in your life, but think of one. That's what's got to happen with our sinful nature. Crucifixion is painful. It's intended, attended with intense pain. And which of us does not, which one of us does not feel the acute pain of inner conflict with the fleeting pleasures of sin. When we renounce them, it is painful. Another thing, the rejection of our old nature is to be decisive. Pitiless, painful and decisive. Although death by crucifixion is a lingering death, it is a certain death. Criminals who are nailed to a cross do not survive. Soldiers are placed at the scene of execution to guard the victim. Their duty is to prevent anyone else from taking the criminal down from the cross, at least until the person is dead. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus, verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. The Greek verb there is something that happens instantaneously indicating that something we did decisively at the time of our conversion. When we came to Christ Jesus, we repented. We crucified everything we knew to be wrong. We took up our old self-centred nature with all its sinful passions and desires, and it was nailed to the cross. And this repentance of ours was decisive, as decisive as crucifixion. So Paul says, if we have crucified the sinful nature, we must... Leave it there to die. And then we must renew every day this attitude towards sin, that of ruthless and uncompromising rejection. In the language of Jesus, if you go to Luke 9.23, Luke 9.23, every Christian must take up his cross daily. So widely is this biblical teaching neglected that it needs to be further enforced. The first step in a policy of holiness lies in the degree and the decisiveness of your repentance and mine. If besetting sins persistently plague us, 
It is either because we have never truly repented or because we, having repented, have not maintained our repentance. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thought invades your mind, you must kick it out at once. It is faithful to begin to examine it and consider whether you're going to give in to it or not. You have crucified the sinful nature. You're never going to draw the nails. But that's only half the story, isn't it, in our policy? We must go further with the policy. We must turn from, we must turn to. And that's in verse 8 of chapter 6. The one who sows to the sinful nature will from that nature reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The Christ-like person is a person who sows to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is both the path where we walk and the field where we sow. The path where we walk is back in chapter 25, in chapter 5 of Galatians and verse 25, the path where we walk. But it's also here the place where we sow seed in chapter 6 and verse 8. How do we expect to reap the fruit of the Spirit if we do not sow in the field of the Spirit? The old proverb is true. Sow a thought and you'll reap an action or a deed. So an action, you'll reap a character. So a character, and you'll reap an eternal destiny. The seeds we sow are largely thoughts and deeds. Every time we allow our mind to harbour a grudge, nurse a grievance, or entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the sinful nature. Every time we linger in bad company where there's an awful influence, that we know we can't resist. Every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we watch dubious shows, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the sinful nature. Some Christians sow to the sinful nature every day and wonder why they do not reap Christ-likeness. Holiness is a harvest whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. To sow to the Spirit, what do we do? This is our policy. It's the same thing as setting our mind on the Spirit, Romans 8, verse 6. It's the same thing as walking by the Spirit in Galatians 5, verse 16. The seeds we sow are our thoughts and deeds. We are to seek and to set our minds on the things of God, things that are above, Galatians, uh, Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, things that are above, not the things of the earth. This happens through the books we read, the company we keep, the leisure occupations we pursue. These are all to do with sowing to the Spirit. So then we're to take disciplined steps of godliness in private and in public, in daily prayer and Bible reading, and in worship with the Lord's people on the Lord's day. 
All this is sowing to the Spirit, going from and coming to, going from and coming to. You can't do one without the other. As I conclude, all this takes me back to Psalm 126. Without these policy steps of crucifying the sinful nature and sowing to the Spirit, there can be no useful Christ-like persons, no harvest of the Spirit, no fruit of the Spirit much, no dream come true, no realised vision that fills our mouths with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy. Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, we ask that each of us today will have a new vision of what it is to bring glory to your name as we see your church thriving and as we expect to see your church thriving. A new vision of what you expect of us too, to be producing all those fruit of your spirit. And we say, Lord God, and we plead with you, what is too hard for you? At the same time, we know that we're not alone. That we can do all things as your son strengthens us. That there'll always be the two of us, wherever we are and whatever we're doing and however we're thinking. Lord Jesus, you'll be with us, helping us to crucify the sinful nature. So that we use every faculty we have to turn from those things that destroy and are, are no use and lead to final destruction and to turn to yourself bringing honour to your name and knowing great joy in yourself and new peace with yourself and growing in our love for yourself. We plead these things, Lord Jesus, for your honour and glory in your name. Amen.